What is up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in. We got another episode today of the Blake Benz podcast. And today we're going to be talking about feedback loops for your business and specifically how can you get as clear a as day understanding of how your business really operates, but more importantly, what customers think about your products. And this is actually something that it's one of the biggest problems we see with business owners. It's also something that we see with people in general is that there are things that our business operates in. There's there's a way that we go about things that in our mind as business owners is a really good idea. We think it's really profitable for our business. And yet in practice, it actually ends up being very damaging to our brands. We're gonna talk a little bit about Boeing today. If you haven't seen the news, Boeing has, uh, it's it had a, uh, with its 737 MAX 8, uh, super jet that plane uh, crashed on an Ethiopian flight uh, I think it was Sunday morning so just a few days ago and since then there has been all of this research coming out all of these things that have been coming out uh, in fact uh, there's been a handful of countries that have totally grounded this flight now and I think it was today actually that at the FAA, uh, the Federal Aviation Agency or Administration, one of the two, uh, also announced that they will be grounding that plane as well. In fact, right before I started recording this podcast, I got an email from the Southwest Airlines CEO, uh, not directly to me, I'm not that important, but just an email uh, out to all of their customers saying that they also would be following suit with the FAA recommendation and will be removing all of those flights from their uh, all of those, uh, that particular model plane from all of their flights. Words are hard. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about why is it so important to really understand the nature of your business and what's really happening in your business? Because what typically happens in business is you have an owner who has a pers- perspective on how their business operates, and the only problem is that it is it is desperately out of touch with what is really true about their business. From a coaching perspective, I see this a lot. I find myself in conversations with people who they're describing their business or they're describing a situation with their business, and they, they're hopelessly out of touch with their business. You know, they're saying, this is the problem I'm having. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not the problem you're having. In fact, one story I like to tell is a business owner who had an employee who uh, ended up, uh, they were having some issues together. This employee was having a tough time working under this owner. And the employee who was a really highly talented employee, the business really needed this employee. And the employee ended up moving on to another business. And then when I talked to the owner the second time, he said, oh yeah, it all worked out. You know, She just wanted to move on to a different industry, wanted to get to a different place. And part of this could have been true, but all I could, all I could think about was you're living on another planet. This person left your company. You lost a highly talented person because you were unwilling to understand really the circumstances that are facing your business. We see this a lot with uh, businesses that grow and scale over time. We call it founder syndrome. It's where businesses have a founder who, you know, when they were first in control of the business and they were growing it, you know, you had this uh, certain, uh, 
you, they, they had like this level of control over the business. Obviously, I mean, especially if they are, if they're the only employee, I mean, they're making every decision for the business. Well, over time, as it grows and scales and develops into this much larger entity, the the owner can no longer just practically be as engaged in all of the things that are operating within that company. And so you have an owner who continues to make decisions based on what was true for them when they were the sole owner, and they don't realize that that's simply not the case anymore. We see this also happen. It's a common argument in education where the the educational landscape, the public school landscape today is changing dramatically. The needs of students are actually changing dramatically. And what people will say to sort of counteract these initiatives is they'll say, well, it wasn't like that when I was in school. Well, it wasn't like that when when I went to public school. It was this way. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, things are constantly changing. You hear the, You hear about this in management as well. You know, 30 years ago, the way management operated was you, you, and you can ask your parents this, you typically had a job and you held on to that job for 20, 30 years. It was rare for someone to change from job to job to job. In fact, it actually would probably damage your viability as a candidate to have all of these job changes on your resume. In some cases, that's still true today. However, what's what's much more the norm today is you have people who will change jobs, they'll even change industries on a fairly consistent basis. In fact, LinkedIn came out with some results about two or three years ago that said that millennials in a 10-year span will change jobs and sometimes even industries five to seven times by the time they are 30. So in a decade, they're going to change jobs quite consistently. And so what happens in management is that you have bosses who are frustrated because their employees aren't just, uh, in their mind, staying loyal. But from a management standpoint, you have more and more employees who they care about one question. That question is why. It's why does my work matter? It's, it's, It's even a further question of how. How does my work contribute to the mission? I was talking to a guy, a business owner this morning, and I loved what he said. He said, all I care about is finding employees who care about our impact and the mission we are making. And this is someone who understands business fairly well. And yet, often we see management problems where you have a dated owner or a dated manager and I don't, I'm not saying old, I'm just saying someone who has an, an old ideology of management where they think, you know what, when I was rising into the ranks, for me, it was about putting your time in and doing whatever the boss told you to. And so now they're trying to manage with that ideology and they don't understand that it doesn't work that way anymore. Just to give you another example of this is that a lot of times you have owners who are misrunning their business. They are making decisions that aren't healthy for, let's say, the frontline employee. And this would be the person who maybe is an hourly worker. It's the, it's the, um, I'm always careful to say like the lowest rank employee or the, 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 uh, least experienced employee. It's cause I don't, I never want to imply a level of quality for those people. But when we talk about frontline employee, this is the person who is very literally out delivering the product, delivering the service, what have you. And a lot of times you have these owners who say, I don't know why they're so frustrated. I did that job 10 years ago. Or you even have a company. I had one company that I was working with that was totally dysfunctional. 
completely dysfunctional from an operations standpoint. And what I kept hearing from the owners and the leadership team was, well, we've done all of these jobs, so we know how it is. And it's like, you know what? You may have known how it was five, seven, eight years ago. It doesn't match reality today. You see it with uh, SaaS companies who are selling software as a service. These companies who they don't understand why they are bleeding users. Why are users going to a competing product? A great analogy of this or great illustration of this is people who went from Snapchat to Instagram. You have companies, these SaaS companies that are rolling out changes to their platforms. Uh, You see it on Reddit, for example, which is a major social platform where they're rolling out a new template for how you get your information and content. And there's such an outcry on the, that, that new template that they've added a feature that says visit old Reddit. You can actually set your Reddit to the old Reddit because you don't want to use the new Reddit. And it's not because they're trying to appease to the minority. It's because there's a large vocal group of people who are unhappy with how the business is operating, the direction it's going, you know, and this isn't even a business concept. There are people that you're friends with today who are making decisions for their own lives that are incredibly destructive. You know, a great example of this would be someone who's in a relationship with someone who is uh, code. Maybe they have a codependent relationship, and they're just they don't have a healthy relationship. And so you see these people making these decisions. And as a vocal friend, maybe you say, you know what? I don't know about that. I don't know if that's a good idea. And so the whole point that I'm getting at is that for people to experience success personally, in their business, what have you, you need feedback channels. You need people to be able to tell you what's real for your business and how you're missing the mark. I want to talk about Boeing today. So you have Boeing, you have this, this plane, it's been out, I guess, for two years, maybe five years. I need to double check the details. I'll probably write up a blog post on this on LinkedIn at some point. So I'll check all the details on this. But so, you know, if you've ever flown on a plane before, <laughs> if we make that generic question of, have you flown on a plane? Chances are you've been on a plane that has been in operation for 20, 30 years. And some people can get kind of skittish about this, you know, where they say, oh, I'm on a plane that came out you know, in 1985, like, I don't know about this. Is this safe? And the reason that these, these airline companies will run these planes for so long, it's, you know, obviously it's very expensive to get a plane, but also these planes have a really incredible efficiency rate. And if you think about it from like a customer standpoint, the biggest detriment to retaining customers is killing your customers. You know, if a plane, if an airline agency has Planes that constantly crash, I'm going to venture and guess that people probably are not going to fly your plane or want to be on your plane, excuse me. Well, so this new type of plane, this 737 MAX uh, 8, if I'm if I'm uh, labeling it correctly, it's only been in service for a few years and there's already been two plane crashes, which apparently it's what I was reading last night. It's a failure rate, if it's even fair to call it that. I mean, it's a it's a catastrophic rate, if anything, of half a percentage point, which sounds low, but in the avi- aviation industry, it's incredibly high, incredibly high, especially considering the time frame of how long it's been in service. 
And, you know, anytime there's a plane crash, you have people who are who are uh, inspecting, and they're trying to figure out exactly what happened, what went wrong that caused this plane to crash. And you may remember the plane flight from, uh, what was it, Malaysia, one of the Malaysian airline flights that just disappeared. And there was a massive search for it. There was a lot of research. I mean, they're trying to figure out what happened. Uh, and of course, anytime I think about a plane crash, I can't help but think about the TV show Lost. And and so I feel like, for some reason, I feel like I'm an expert on this topic because I've seen I've seen the ABC show Lost a few times, too many times. But so you have these people who are very smart and they try to retrieve like the black box and try to figure out exactly what happened on this flight that caused the crash. Well, what they found for this specific crash, this Ethiopian flight, they found that it, it there was some kind of issue this in developing the technology when when Boeing developed the technology for this plane. They developed some kind of so think about the concept of like the autopilot. So the autopilot is there so that part of the plane kind of flies itself or you can kind of turn it on. And I'm going to, you know, if you're an airline expert and you're listening to me, you're probably thinking like, how dare you? This is not, it is way more complicated than this. But the bottom line, end of the day, it it alleviates the pressure for the captain of the plane to have to be sitting there, hands on the controls, you know, physically flying the plane for the entire duration of the flight. So, uh, bearing this in mind, what Boeing did for their flight was they, it, just through the innovation of the industry, they have developed some really cool uh, autopilot-esque type features for their plane, and it's an automated system that helps the pilot fly the plane. And apparently the way it operates is based on the the elevation of the plane and the the pitch of the plane and the direction of it flying, it will inform the pilot of of whether the pilot's making good decisions or not. And so that's that's probably the the roughest description of this system that I can explain. Well, what they found was that there was some kind of error in the system where based on all these different variables, kind of this freak deal of variables, the system will force the plane to nosedive. And so the pilot then is trying to overcome this automated system that is forcing it to nosedive. And again, it's 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 through a bug in the software. It is something that is a total, I mentioned it as a freak deal of variables. It doesn't happen often. You don't need to panic when you fly. But it has obviously happened enough where in the last few years, we've had two planes where because of this issue, this bug in the system, it's caused these planes to nosedive to the point where the pilot cannot fix the problem and the plane crashes uh, and we see the unfortunate events that, that we've seen in the news. So you see something like this happen and you think, oh my gosh, that's awful, that's terrible. You know, it's 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 a total tragedy. You know, it's it's a total nightmare. I mean, there's plenty of people who are f- afraid of flying and they see these, this news story and they think, Oh my gosh. You know, and if for me personally, I'm flying to Germany uh, here in the next couple of months. And so naturally I think about my flight to Germany and I'm like, man, ugh. you know, I, I, I just can't even imagine. Right. Well, so as they're doing research and they figure out that it's this automated system, you know, there's this one aspect of, okay, now we know what the problem is. Let's fix it. And you can, in some ways, I guess you can blame you can blame Boeing for mistakes, but at the end of the day, it's kind of like, man, who could have known? It's kind of the cost of technology. 
you know, uh, Elon Musk, who runs SpaceX and is sending people to Mars or is going to send people to Mars. I mean, even he says, you know what? People are going to die on these first journeys to journey to Mars. And it's just because the technology, there's bugs we're not aware of that it's going to unfortunately cost the lives of people. And so one defense I've seen in Boeing's case is, well, you know what? To advance our technology, there's going to be errors. There's going to be mistakes. And it doesn't excuse the tragedy, but it, it is sort of the cost of scientific innovation or pr- the proliferation of, of advancing technology. And that's actually not why I'm making this podcast. The reason I'm making this podcast is I saw in the news either yesterday or the day before that apparently this problem with the technology has been recognized by pilots long before this incident. In fact, whenever you look at the data, and apparently pilots have a system, and I don't really know much details about the system, but pilots have a system where when something is not operating correctly, you can apparently complain about it in some kind of database that uh, I guess these aircraft designers then take that information and they use it to improve the uh, their system. Well, whenever they looked about this specific automated system for this Boeing plane, they found that it wasn't just, uh, you know, a couple of complaints. It wasn't just like a few thousand complaints. They found that there had been 60,000 complaints about this specific model plane. And it wasn't like complaints like, you know, the carpet feels funny. It was 60,000 complaints specifically about the pilot controls and the system that had been installed in this plane. And when I read that, my my initial thought was anger, was, geez, you know, this isn't something that just popped up. This is something that's been articulated for a long time. And then the other thing that I felt was kind of cynicism. And, and I say cynicism because I kind of had this feeling of like, of course, why am I not surprised? You know, I remember when uh, my my wife's family's from Kansas City and there's this water park in Kansas City and I can't remember what it's called, but they had this massive water slide where really horrific story where a young boy was decapitated because he was on the raft on this water slide and there was this this uh, cage on this top part of the water slide that was designed to catch people if they got launched from their raft. And what actually happened was the boy, and I know this is really gruesome, so I'm sorry for this. The boy got launched from his raft, head got caught on the cage, and it decapitated the kid. Eight-year-old kid. Killed the kid, obviously. And it was a really terrible story. And like I said, my wife, uh, her family's from Kansas City. I think her dad ran for uh, House Representative seat. And the uh, boy's father who was killed was a senator. And so through some kind of connection, they knew the family. And it was just really disturbing. It was really sad. It was really upsetting, right? And and what actually came out afterwards when the owner of this water park was arrested was that they had gotten feedback from guests for months about how of people who'd gotten injured, people who had hit this cage and like, you know, had to get stitches. Uh, there came there came out stories of the owners of this of this park who at night when the park was closed, they would uh, run this slide this 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 raft themselves. 
They'd put like bean bags on it. They would try to, they'd run it and just see, you know, did anyone get launched? And they were doing this all to try to figure out and solve the problem without sacrificing the revenue of their business. And what I have found, and I, I tell this story because what I have been, what I've found to be true is that three things are typically true when a, when a catastrophic event happens for a business. I have found that it's, first of all, it's, and it's usually one of these three things. First of all, it is, it's, it's something unethical. It's, it is the pure greed for money. You know, it's the case of Enron where they had cooked their books and they went from $60 billion in valuation down to zero basically overnight. And, and the owner, the CEO had, had, uh, Kenneth Lay, I think that's his name, had essentially been okay with tanking the company because, I mean, obviously he didn't want it to tank, but in his mind it was, it's, I'm okay with making these decisions because it's making me a very rich person. And I don't want to imply that's the case with Boeing. I don't want to imply that, you know, corporate greed or capitalism or, uh, any of those things have led to the situation that Boeing is in today. Although I also don't want to be naive, those things are absolutely present. They happen day to day where companies are not making decisions in their customers' best interests. And instead, they're making decisions in their own best interests and they're trying to become very profitable from it. That's not something I want to really get into because, you know, all we can do in that is, is call it when we see it and try to develop a standard for how we do business. It's like the marketer that I was working with today who, you know, there's a lot of marketers that are out there, especially online, a lot of digital marketers who will, they'll take pictures of themselves in front of fancy cars. They will promise to make you a multimillionaire. And what they're essentially doing is they are, uh, these are these unsavory people who they're trying to make a quick buck from you because they know that if they can develop a churn rate of of making a quick buck from enough people, they can become very profitable even though they're hurting a lot of people in the process. And the marketer I was talking to today was like, man, I just, I just feel like, you know, for my life to be worth anything, I can't operate out of that way. I have to, even if it's harder, even if, even if it makes business slower, it's kind of like for me, for example, I think about how slow it's been to develop the flywheel for my business and develop momentum for my business. Now I know the payoff is coming. You know, when I say payoff, I mean financial payoff. I mean, I mean being able to uh, develop the lifestyle that I want, but I also mean the payoff of, of actually being able to impact people in a positive way. If I was not a moral person, if I was not an ethical business owner, I could make a lot of money much faster. I could build that momentum much quicker than I'm doing it today. But, you know, unfortunately, I have this set of of ethics that I like to stick to, and so uh, I don't want to go that route, right? So beyond just like the ethics of the whole system, let's talk very practical. Let's talk about the things that you can be doing for your business right now today to really get a, it's first of all, it's to avoid the the catastrophic events that we're seeing with Boeing. And, and here's the deal. I'm not even talking about, I'm not even talking about loss of life because you know, you, you wouldn't want to, to, to listen to this podcast and say, well, I don't deal with people's well-being. And so I don't, you know, this doesn't apply to me. I'm talking about catastrophe from like, even like a business sustainability standpoint. I mean, there have been so many instances of businesses that have totally tanked and ruined their company because they made one bad decision that 
totally it destroyed their market share. It destroyed their revenue system, and they are no longer around today. And a perfect example of this would be Rubbermaid. Rubbermaid, they they the long the long and short of it is you know Rubbermaid, you probably have Rubbermaid in your house, the little uh, Tupperware containers, and it's a great product. It operates really well. Well, the story of Rubbermaid is is you know long story short, they are no longer around today. The company that owns them is actually Newell. Newell acquired Rubbermaid when Rubbermaid went bankrupt in the late 90s. Rubbermaid went bankrupt. They were totally insolvent, and they were sold off and acquired to uh, by by Newell. And so that brand basically died. And so Newell, because they're a much smarter business than Rubbermaid was, they realized, you know what? Let's keep the brand name of Rubbermaid. Let's not like rebrand this thing at all. Well, so whenever you asked the Rubbermaid executives what went wrong with Rubbermaid, you had a lot of of really interesting answers. You had people who uh, they blamed uh, former leadership at Rubbermaid. The they blamed uh, in some cases they blamed their customers. Their their main customer, their primary customer, was Walmart. And so when Walmart, which, you know, Walmart operates by providing always low prices, always, well, they are a really challenging company from like a negotiation standpoint because they're trying to protect their margins, but they're also trying to, in in living out that, you know, saving you money so you can live better mantra, they have to be able to offer products at the cheapest possible price. And so from that, they get into these really challenging conversations with the vendors and the supplier community on, you know, what can you do for me, for me to help my customer? And obviously it's this constant, uh, this constant dance of negotiation that happens between these companies. Well, so Rubbermaid basically had, had positioned itself to have the majority of its product on Walmart shelves. Walmart came back, or actually what happened was Rubbermaid said, you know what, we're, we're charging you this amount. We want to charge you a higher amount. And Walmart said, we're not going to do that. Sorry. And if you don't like it, you can take your product, take it elsewhere. Well, Rubbermaid said, well, we're not, we're, we're not okay with that. And this is the price. So if you want our product, you're going to need to uh, pay us more. And Walmart said, okay, well, we'll go with a different Tupperware company. And so they pulled all of Rubbermaid's products from their shelves. Well, what's really fascinating about this is naturally, uh, everyone loves to blame Walmart for things and not that Walmart is the perfect company. They do plenty of things wrong. But so what Rubbermaid did was, and in, in whenever you asked the executives about what went wrong, they said, well, it was Walmart's fault. Walmart effectively screwed us over. They, they would not allow us to raise the prices. They kind of held us. Uh, we were imprisoned by their rates. But so what, what's really interesting about this story is when you go ask the customers, and I'm not even talking about Walmart, let's, let's talk about their other customers. When you ask their other customers about Rubbermaid, they had a very different explanation than the executives did. In fact, customers would tell stories of Rubbermaid shipments were always late, so they were never on time. They would promise you a price and then charge you more. They would they would promise you a quantity of shipment and then they would ship you less. And so if you take away the brand name of Rubbermaid, imagine that, that you're just a business consultant and you're hearing these comments from the customers. You would probably naturally assume, okay, this is a very dysfunctional company. 
It's a company that's operating at very low productivity. It has a dysfunctional process. And not and again, we're we're throwing out the concept of greed. We're assuming that this is not a company that's because because most companies that I work with, most companies that I've interacted with, they're not legitimately trying to take advantage of their customers. But but what they do have is they have a broken feedback system. And what people at the top, what they think to be true about the business is very different from what customers actually think and want. It's, it's actually why when you look at the, the reasons that businesses fail, 40% of businesses fail because they're offering something that customers don't want or they're offering it in a package or a way that customers don't want to receive it in. And, and obviously, no one willingly does that. It's that you have... You have an owner who thinks one thing that is, it's just, it's frankly not true. And so to be a successful business person, you have to have these feedback channels. You have to have these metrics that are in place that informs you then in an unbiased way, it informs you what's actually happening in your business. For all of your your genius as an owner, for all of the things that have made you as successful as you are, you need a way for people to tell you what's broken in your business. And you have to be able to separate your ego from it. You have to be able to separate your bias from it. You have to be able to, um, and, and here's what I mean by bias. My, I had a former boss who, who really, he, he articulated it very well. We would have these meetings, uh, and well, let me just talk through the way he would phrase the story. He would have these meetings with his 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 team and and we'd be talking about feedback and like what do what do customers think about us? And you'd have an employee who would raise their hand and say, Well, this customer said that we totally changed their business, changed their life, made a great impact. And and then everyone around the room would hear this very tearful, moving story and everyone would clap and and I'm obviously I'm I'm really <laughs> I'm I'm roughly describing the story. Um, but so he would talk about how one person would tell this story. And not like not like to mislead anyone. It's it's a legitimate story. But we tell this very moving story of a of a success story with a customer. And yet no one would talk about the fact that the business lost ten thousand dollars that week. And what it does is that I've always appreciated that story because it illustrates how we we parry we we parry, we cherry pick data to make us feel good. It speaks to our unwillingness. To, to see the honest truth. It's actually what makes my coaching conversations really challenging sometimes because I'll have someone who will tell me one thing about their business and I'll say, well, you know, I know it sounds like it's that way. It's actually this way. And because it makes them feel uncomfortable or it attacks their ego or it is painful to understand, they they refuse it. Nope, that's not right. I'm not going to think about that. Uh, and not that I don't miss the mark sometimes myself, but if you if you think of it as like a step process, I want to have open dialogue with my customers, and I also want to have open dialogue with my frontline employees because these people are working with customers, and I want to know what is really true about my business and what are really the problems that we have. I'm trying to solve the problems that are going to keep me from being competitive in the marketplace. And so the first step is to even have those feedback loops, to even have those channels where people can communicate to you. And you have to actually do something with it, right? I mean, I think about 
to Boeing's advantage, they have this pilot database where people can put in complaints, but nothing happens with it, right? It's like it's like a sea of information that no one actually takes and analyzes. It's it's literally the epitome of having the suggestion box be the trash can. Right. You've probably heard of that cliche of like the boss who has a suggestion box and then the janitor at night comes through and empties the suggestion box into the trash can. Uh, or I remember when I used to work for this one company that had a suggestion box and like five years later, we, and we, it's, it's this locked suggestion box. Like five years after this thing's been installed, the owner takes a set of keys and, and opens the suggestion box and all of these suggestions come falling out. And so it's like, you know, good on you for having the box, but you got to actually use it. You got to actually do something with it. And I think step two with that is it's, it's that concept. Exactly. It's, it's what do we, you know, what proves that we're doing something with the data. And I think part of that comes in this concept of ownership. You have to have people in your company who, and I'm not even saying like you're very literally giving them equity where they're actual owners, but they care about the direction of the company because they care because they're because the culture is healthy and they care about the mission of the organization they have they are incentivized they believe in improving the company to make it as valuable as possible they want to see this company flourish and so they it's in their mind they have an owner's mindset of i care about this data getting to where it needs to go and so I, I don't know if this is what happened at Boeing, but clearly someone saw the data and did nothing with it. You know, it was like, eh, well, you know, what do they know? What do the pilots know? You know, eh, well, you know, or you have one person who they take ownership over the problem. You know, they go to the manager and they say, uh, well, hey, you know, I'm seeing a lot of problems on this topic. A lot of pilots are complaining about this system. And then the manager doesn't take ownership over it. Or, you know what, man, that's just another one of my problems. I got 12 different problems. That's like at the bottom of the list. I'm not going to deal with that right now. And when there's a lack of ownership, there is a lack of accountability. Same thing is true for our personal lives. You know, we have to have people in our lives who can tell us very honestly how we're missing the mark. And it's not even like this this you know, cliche concept of how do I be a successful person? It's how do I be a successful professional? How do I stay? Uh, how do I, how do I develop meaningful friendships? I need to have people in my life who can pull me aside and say, Blake, you've missed it. You've missed the mark. And I have to be able to take ownership over that feedback and say, you know what? I'm going to do something about that. You know, there's nothing worse than, than someone who you feel like you're, you're just, you know, on repeat, giving them feedback on something that they're doing or a, an, an unhealthy decision that they're making. They're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Just, it is what it is. And then the third step I think is important is you have to be willing to put aside ego. People do not like rejection. They don't like criticism. They don't like knowing how they're failing. It is painful to get feedback. It is. It is painful to get feedback and be told because, you know, we're, we all love to hear when we're, we're hitting the mark. We all love to hear when we're, we're, you know, flourishing. It is not comfortable to have people tell us what we're doing wrong. And I think that's why people are so resistant to develop authentic feedback systems. You know, they create the suggestion box that is the trash can because part of them wants to know, but they also don't really want to know, you know, how they're missing the mark. 
And so I think we have to be willing to put aside ego in its worst form. I see this in companies who they get those, they get that feedback from their customers and they say, well, if they don't like it, they can go somewhere else. And that chip on their shoulder, that ego is killing their business because they don't realize, yeah, your customers will go somewhere else. They're going to go somewhere else. And your ego is keeping you from understanding how this is killing you. So being able to set that ego aside, being able to understand that I don't have it together and recognizing I need these feedback systems that I take ownership over, this is how we stay successful in life. It's how we stay successful as business owners. It's how we stay successful professionally. It's how we be, we develop meaningful friendships. You know, the people that I'm friends with, I want them to feel like I do more for their life than I take from them. You know, I want them to feel like that I, 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 there is a mutual beneficial relationship happening here where I'm, it's not just all about me, you know, where I'm not a total narcissist of what can I, what can I get from you or what have you done for me lately to do that? Well, you have to have these feedback systems in place. And I talked about this, uh, on a podcast episode, maybe a month or two ago. And I, I think the episode's called surround yourself with truth tellers, you know, ultimately, you need people in your life who will tell you the truth. You need customers who will tell you the truth. And what I have found to be true is that, uh, especially in this form, especially in this way, customers are very willing to be open and honest about their experience. I don't think the issue is lack of data or a lack of willingness over the customers. I think the issue is we don't always create the very intentional systems that allow us to get the feedback that we need. Create those systems, create ways for people to tell you, and and, and we're not even talking external, internally too, create ways for your internal employees to tell you what's real about your business so that you can not just have a perception of a business, you'd have an accurate perception. I mean, everyone has, every owner has a perception for how their business is run. It just isn't always accurate. So to create that accurate perception and then to be able to make the right strategic decisions for your business, to be able to develop yourself in the way that is appropriate for the direction you need to head in life, you need these feedback loops, these systems, these channels that can tell you how it is and can inform you. And then all you got to do is take actual ownership over those things, put your ego aside and actually put them in motion. Too many companies fail because they do nothing with data. They do nothing with the feedback or they're just unwilling to listen. You know, we see it today with Boeing where we've seen it in the past with a company like Blockbuster, which is like the epitome of this. It's our customers don't really mind the late fees when really Blockbuster is saying that because the late fees make up you know 40% of their business model. And then you have a company like Netflix that comes along that says, no, you know, says no late fees, keep it as long as you want. We just won't send you a new one until you send it back. And suddenly that business model begins to flourish. Blockbuster, they're down to the last store uh, and it's really not hard to see why. Thanks for listening today. I appreciate it. As always, you can email me, Blake at goodadvicecoaching.com. If you got a question, if you got some feedback, uh, feedback for myself, uh, or if you just want to talk shop a little bit, you know, if you if you want to talk about this episode more in depth, I would love to talk with you. Uh, looking forward to it. Hope to hear from you, and I will catch you all later.